Well, good morning, Westmount. Uh, great to be back with you. And let me just say, I never get tired of seeing full churches in these days. Uh, so we thank God for what he's doing at Westmount. And whatever is in store for the church in the upcoming months and years, be encouraged, be excited. God is doing a work in these days. The church has always come into its own in the midst of trials. So be encouraged. We are going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12 this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. You had a head start. That's not fair. Okay. 2, 1 to 12. I'm going to read our passage, and then I'll commit our time to the Lord in prayer. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days... It was reported that he, being Jesus, was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Lord, for all the dangers that confront us in these days, perhaps the greatest danger, a danger I certainly feel in myself, is the danger of a cooling love for you and for your people. You warned um, that church that they had left their first love behind. And Lord, may that never be said of us. Lord, may our faith never become a dry, miserable, formulaic thing that perhaps can recite doctrine and confessions and yet is totally devoid of real experiential faith. Um, Lord, we read this passage and, and we see that you brought, you healed a man who was irrecoverably sick. And uh, that, is, that was us, Lord. We certainly didn't go looking for you. And, and day after day, Lord, it, it's, it seems like that is us, that we need your reviving, restoring touch to forgive our sins and 
to renew our relationship and fellowship with you. Lord, would you be with us this morning as we look at this text, encourage your people, and receive the glory. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, I don't know if anyone here ever walks through Jackson Park. It's one of our favorite uh, kind of family spots to hike. Uh, At one point in the trail, you walk under a bridge, and there's a bunch of course, graffiti on either side, Um, there's one phrase in big green letters that always catches my eye. It says, question authority, question authority. It's become popular, uh, even virtuous in our day to question authority, to assume really that we are actually safer on our own, ungoverned unencumbered by laws and police and various other authority structures. But as we turn to the scriptures, we see that authority and authority structures are actually God's idea. He puts children under the authority of parents, citizens under the authority and the rightful exercise of that authority, make that caveat, of government, and human beings, all of us, under his own authority, ultimately, whether we want to admit that or not. And the Bible doesn't just portray authority as kind of a necessary evil, either. Um, Law and order are actually demonstrations of God's common grace. It's a gift. And furthermore, under the right kind of authority, everything and everyone flourishes which leads us to the question, well, what is authority? And what does proper exercise of that authority look like? Because authority often gets abused as well, doesn't it? The dictionary defines authority as the power or right to give orders, make decisions, and enforce obedience. And that's a pretty good definition Uh, To be in authority, you need to have both the right to be there and the power, the ability to enforce that right. Uh, Now, that's where most people stop in thinking about authority. Uh, Of course, they're not wrong. Authority isn't less than right and power, but there's a third strand to the cord of authority that isn't necessarily intuitive. It's not something we come to on our own. And that is, as we read the scriptures, that true authority serves. It gives of itself. It is willing to serve those under its care. It doesn't sit on the sidelines. It's right there in the fray. And authority usually ends up looking like tyranny when it neglects this willingness to pour itself out on behalf of those it leads. Listen to Jesus' definition of authority in Matthew 20, 25 to 28. But Jesus called them, the disciples, to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And here's the kicker. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came into this world with both the power and the right to authority. Yet he came not to be served, but to serve. Our passage today is all about authority. Uh, That's kind of its central theme. And we're going to hopefully see how Jesus is the perfect expression of all three qualities. Right, power, and serving. And the question is not whether we'll be under authority, but whose authority we're going to be under. Um, The great theologian Bob Dylan once said, you're going to have to serve somebody. We're all going to serve somebody. And by the end of our time here, I hope we'll realize it's not only our duty to bow the knee to Jesus, but our privilege as well. So first of all, let's look at Jesus' right to authority. So you can picture this small house, verse 1 there in Capernaum. The place is packed. No room to get in the front door. Jesus is in the middle uh, of teaching. Suddenly there's a sound of, of scraping and digging overhead, and everyone's kind of showered with bits of straw and, and mud. And there's this bed being lowered through the roof until it's resting right in front of Jesus. And on the bed is a paralyzed man. And his friends are probably just kind of peering through the hole they made, hopefully at Jesus. Now everyone knew this man on the bed, probably. Knew he'd been paralyzed for a long time, perhaps since birth. And now Jesus necessarily has to, he had to stop his teaching. It's hard to go on when there's a paralyzed man in front of you. The whole crowd is just waiting to see probably could have heard a pin drop, what Jesus will do. And then, verse 5, in what might seem like the world's greatest anticlimax, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. The man on the bed and his friends were probably feeling a bit confused and maybe disappointed at this point. And we're going to get to why Jesus leads with that instead of healing him right away. But for now, just notice the scribes and the religious leaders here. They were scandalized. Who does this guy think he is? Verse 7. Why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, if we were to draw out the scribe's logic, it might look like this. So premise one, only God has the authority to forgive sins. Premise two, Jesus is claiming to forgive this man's sins. So the conclusion, either this man standing here is God, which we're not even going to consider, or he's blaspheming by pretending to do things only God can do. Now, of course, the scribes' angst here isn't really about God's honor. They're not concerned about God's honor. They're worried that Jesus' authority is going to encroach and compromise on their own authority. Now, to the first point, that only God can forgive sins, that would have been indisputable to every Jew present. Everyone knew that. Here's just one of many Old Testament verses on that. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. 
the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That's why David in Psalm 51.4, mourning over his sin with Bathsheba, says, against you, he's talking about God, you only have I sinned. Had he sinned against Uriah? Yes. Had he sinned against Bathsheba? Absolutely. But his ultimate sin was against God and his law that specified, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. So why then is Jesus claiming to have authority to forgive sins? Well, it could be that he's just a Jewish man with delusions of grandeur. That's a possibility. That was certainly the Pharisees' logic and hope. There had been false prophets and messiahs before. But then again, the burden of proof was on the Pharisees to prove that Jesus wasn't God. Because by this time, Jesus had already demonstrated his authority over powers that typically only God was thought to have. So just before this, um, well, verse 40 in chapter 1 and on, uh, Jesus tells leprous skin, be clean, and it becomes clean. And then earlier, uh, verse 21, chapter 1, Jesus tells demons, be gone, and they go. What do the people say? They get it. A new teaching, a new teaching, and with authority. This was something new. This was something revolutionary. What about the resurrection? We have the benefit of of hindsight. I don't care how much authority you think you have or how many people take orders from you, no one on the basis of their own authority can say to death, I'll pass, thanks. Not today, death. Except for the man, Christ Jesus, of whom it said in Acts 2.24, I love the New Living Translation here, death could not keep its grip on him. Why? because Jesus has authority over death. Why? Because he's not just a man, he's also God. That's why he can walk out of a tomb after three days, no one, no thing, no tomb, no guard, no death hindering him. By virtue of this divine authority, Jesus has the right to authority and the right to forgive sins, being God. So Jesus has the right to authority. We see that. Secondly, we see in this passage, Jesus not only has the right to authority, but the power to back up that authority. We see that in verses 8 to 11. It's one thing to state that someone's sins are forgiven. You know, there's no way you can prove that one way or the other. Jesus knows that. So what he does here is basically an attempt to argue from the greater to the the lesser. If I can lift a pew, then I can definitely lift a hymn book. 
right? If I can do the greater, there's every reason to believe I can do the lesser. And so Jesus does what, at least in the crowd's eyes, is the greater objective miracle of healing this man from his paralysis. Pick up your bed and go home. And he gets up, goes home. So, um, even though if they actually, if they, if they grasp the power of sin, really, that, that was the greater miracle here uh, of Jesus forgiving his sin. But to the crowds, to those looking on, healing this man's paralysis would have been objectively greater. And Jesus is saying, you've seen my power over what you consider greater authorities, the authority of sickness over the body. Now prove that I don't also have the authority to forgive sins. So this then becomes the ministry, (coughs) sorry, if you want to call it that, of the religious leaders. That's their ministry, to try and grasp at whatever straw they have to in order to disprove and discredit and downplay Jesus' evident power. That's all they do. And there have been many in the past century, well, throughout history and today, who try to discredit the biblical historical Jesus by qualifying or explaining away his miracles, rationalizing the resurrection, denying his divinity, etc. Every Easter, it seems, and every Christmas, you have a Time magazine or a National Geographic magazine coming out trying to discredit Jesus, right? It's, it's gone on since the beginning uh, of the church. Why? Well, because we're afraid of exactly what the Pharisees and the scribes were afraid of. If Jesus is God, then he has authority over all creation, including me. That means that my own authority isn't final. That means I don't actually get to choose whether I want to follow Jesus or not. The call of Jesus, the call to discipleship, is not a suggestion. It's not recommended advice. It's not a case where if you reject Jesus, you can kind of just go your own way and he'll go away, he'll go his way. No, if if Jesus is who he says he is, it doesn't matter if you feel like following him. It isn't a matter of preference or inclination. Are you going to obey God or not? Something to think about. Let's get back to the question we left earlier. Why in the world does Jesus lead with forgiving this man's sins instead of healing his body? It seems like you probably wouldn't want Jesus working in the triage, as a triage nurse in the hospital. But think about it. If I had a tumor on my neck and went to the doctor and he said, no problem, we'll get you into a surgery, we'll remove uh, that and send you on your way. No x-ray, no blood work. Would he be a good doctor? No. Because a good doctor is going to realize a tumor can be a symptom of something much deeper and much more serious. He's going to run the appropriate tests. He's going to get to the bottom 
of whatever that is. And Jesus, the great physician, eyes before whom no motive or sickness can ever hide, sees this man's real problem, sees his real terminal danger, paralysis, as terrible as it was, was a symptom of something much more sinister. One that if not dealt with results not merely in the death of the body, but the never-ending destruction of both body and soul in hell. Those are the wages of sin. And sin is the underlying condition behind all symptoms. Sickness, abuse, divorce, injustice, fear, sadness, oppression, you name it, sin's behind it somewhere working. And even if the leading physician in Capernaum found some way to heal this paralytic, what's the best that man could hope for? There are 15, 20 years, maybe, before some other sickness or tragedy claimed his life. I was reading in, in John 11 yesterday, and, and here's Lazarus, Jesus bringing him back from the dead. And the next chapter, the Jews are trying to kill him. So he's, <laughs> Lazarus, just, I should have stayed dead. <laughs> but anyways, that, we can't escape death, right? Um, what good is it, Jesus says in Mark 8.36, if you gain the whole world and yet lose your soul, if you find the perfect career, the perfect diet, the perfect exercise regime, the perfect spouse, and if everything is comfortable and easy and safe for the 60 or 70 years of your life, and then you have to face God in your sin and lose your life, what good was all of that? You can be a paralytic or a shut-in or have recurring depression or MS or any number of a million conditions in this life and still have eternal life if your sins are forgiven. And you can have everything in this life and only have a miserable eternity to look forward to. You see, Jesus' priorities aren't confused. We're confused. Yet notice also that Jesus isn't unconcerned about this man's quality of life. Here we see the third strand of authority, the compassion, the sacrificial giving of itself. Jesus isn't irritated at the intrusion. Notice that. In Matthew 9, the parallel passage, he actually says, take heart, my son, take heart. The creator and upholder of worlds, keeper of all wisdom, eternal, incorruptible, bends down, maybe takes the man's hand, says, take heart. Here was a man at the bottom rung of the social ladder, had nothing whatsoever that could contribute to Jesus' person or mission. And yet Jesus has compassion on him. What kind of man is this, the disciples asked, that even the wind and the waves obey him? We could ask the same thing. What kind of man is this, 
What kind of God is this who stoops, who bends down to help those who can't help themselves? And the answer is the kind of God that lays aside his glory to become a servant, to demonstrate in contrast to the Pharisees what real authority looks like. See, the Pharisees were only in the business of adding burdens. Jesus is the only one who can take them away. Now, you would think that witnessing the humility of the Messiah, giving himself in this way, would have been celebrated by all those around him in Capernaum that day. That's not the case. We see three kinds of reactions. So things, first of all, we see the sick. There's the sick man here. Things in Jesus' time were not like they are now. There were no PSWs, no disability coverage, no modern medicine, no wheelchairs. Those who suffered from debilitating illness were, in the fullest sense of the word, completely helpless and reliant on the generosity of others. This man had a bed. He had four good friends. That was about it in the world. And the condition of the paralytic so perfectly illustrates our condition, I don't think you could find a better one. Here's Isaiah 1, 15 and 16, describing those who are away from God. Their whole head is sick. The whole heart faint from the sole of the foot even to the head. There's no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. There are no making decisions for Christ in this condition. There is no picking up one's mat and heading home if something drastic doesn't happen first, if Jesus doesn't initiate healing. Perhaps you feel something of that sin sickness here this morning. Your resolutions to start being or doing better have failed. Your caution to go only so far into a certain vice, a certain sin, is starting to slip, and you find yourself sliding deeper into it. You continue in habits you know are separating you from God and destroying you and your family, and you start to realize the awful truth that you don't have the power to heal yourself, and I don't, and none of us do. Maybe you've started to despair. Well, if this is you this morning, no amount of my take hearts are going to do you any good. I don't have the authority, the power, or the right, nor does anyone else, to pronounce you free or forgiven. But Jesus does. Just as Jesus could perceive the thoughts of the Pharisees and the man and his friends, so he knows us right down to our deepest parts. And yet, just as he didn't stand waiting, Jesus with his hands outstretched, waiting for the paralyzed man to take it, so Jesus doesn't stand on the sidelines, waiting for us to clean ourselves up first. He's in the midst of the mess. He speaks. He speaks and the dead are raised. 
and it's the sick. It's those who feel their condition to an acute degree who are in a unique position to receive Jesus. The healthy, those who think themselves well, will overlook him every time. So the first category, the sick. The second category, we find the seekers. His friends. Some might say it was because Jesus was impressed at the faith of his friends that he healed the man. And certainly no one climbs onto a roof with the dead weight of a paralyzed man and his bed and then digs through a roof and straws and beams without some degree of faith. And yet we're not really told anything about the faith of these men except that it was there to some extent. Jesus saw their faith. Was it great faith? Was it small faith? Was it doubting faith? Was it uh, unknowledgeable faith? We're not really told anything else except that these men, in some degree, believed that Jesus could help them. And the funny thing is that is true of most of Jesus' encounters. Did the bleeding woman in Mark 5 know much about Jesus when she touched his robe, apart from hoping and believing that he could help her somehow? Did the father of the possessed child in Mark 9 have great faith that Jesus could heal his possessed son? No, we actually no, explicitly, he confesses his unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. He knows his faith, his belief is so mixed. Remember in John chapter 11, after Jesus tells Martha, the sister of Lazarus, that he will rise again, what does she say? Yes, Jesus, I know that someday in the final resurrection, he will rise again, right? She doubts, she disbelieves. And yet in all these circumstances, Jesus heals them anyway. Why is that? Well, the truth is that biblical faith is always more concerned about the reliability of its object rather than the potency of the faith itself. I've used this illustration before. I know I have. I'm gonna do it again. Does my doubting whether a chair, that chair, will hold my weight in any way affect that chair's ability to hold me? Does it care whether I believe in it or not? No, the chair is not concerned about my faith. And I can choose to just stand here or believe that just as it, it has sustained hundreds of other people, so it will sustain me. And the reasonable thing to do is to sit down and the reasonable response to Jesus is likewise to trust him. Here's Octavius Winslow. He was a Puritan. If then your faith is feeble and tried, do not be cast down. Faith does not save you in this context. The amount, the degree, the quality. Though it be an instrument of salvation and as such is of vast importance it is but the instrument. The finished work of Emmanuel is the ground of your salvation. Yes, it is your salvation itself. 
If Jesus only loves us and pursues us insofar as we exercise complete, whole, undoubting faith, no one's getting saved. He says as much in Luke 18, 8. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is that he won't. At least none of real metal and quality. And there are few people, just kind of as an aside, unless you're one of the blessed few, and it is a blessing with a biblically literate upbringing, who are going to come to Jesus understanding all the nuts and bolts of who he is right off the bat. They may not know about the Westminster Confession or the Doctrines of Grace or be able to map out how the Trinity works or a hundred other things. Now, I I do think creeds and and doctrinal statements are, are helpful and necessary in this day. What I am saying, because it's what Jesus seems to demonstrate time and time again, is that it is enough that the first few steps of faith may only be the barest reaching into darkness. We better not put up more fences than Jesus did. And we better not imagine there are more fences than Jesus puts up. The final category, we have the scribes. Scribes here who... um, were not impressed or happy about this man being healed. Now, the scribes and Pharisees lived a sad, dusty little life. Uh, They weren't the ones to rejoice at the healing of another human being. They they weren't going to allow themselves even for a moment the possibility that Jesus was God. What he said about himself was true. They were only and ever concerned with themselves, their influence, their authority, their position. And while it's true that the actual sect of the scribes and Pharisees has disappeared, the spirit of scribism is all too alive and well. What does that look like? Well, there's many ways. I think we can take two from this passage. You might be a scribe if you confuse proximity to religion with saving faith. Remember the story of the prodigal son in Luke 18. Now keep in mind, you know, the, these guys were right next to Jesus. They'd, they'd seen him, they'd seen what he could do. Luke 18, when the prodigal son came home, the elder son could comfort himself in the fact that he never went and messed up his life like his younger brother. And yet we see in the end that he didn't have the heart of a son either for all his years at home, for all his dutiful chore doing, being at the dinner table every night. His heart wasn't marked by a love for his father, only for self-preservation. He's still bitter and resentful and selfishly ambitious. He wasn't happy for his brother. He was bitter at the welcome he received. He was still lost. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they knew the law like no other person. And yet for how close they seemed to God for their long prayers and their fancy robes, they were the farthest away of anyone. 
Remember the two men that went to the temple to pray, the Pharisee and the sinner, both in the vicinity of religion. And yet only one of those men going away forgiven, justified. What was the difference? The difference was that the Pharisee never actually owned himself as someone in need, as a sinner. Only the tax collector did that. If you know your Isaiah, you'll know that God's two favorite places are in the high and holy place and also with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. To be contrite literally means to be crushed, ground into powder. Remember the people in Acts 2.37 who heard Peter as he preached the gospel to them. What happened? They were cut to the heart. That's contrition. Contrition happens when the Holy Spirit takes the word of God and drives it into all those areas of our life that we walled off, strung some yellow tape around. Those little corners where sin and idols have been coddled and excused. And he brings brokenness. And it's towards such a heart that God draws near. And until we realize we're as desperate as the man flattered on the bed, we will never see the value and the power of Jesus. We'll resent him for presuming to condemn us as sinners when he's telling us the truth. If our lives are devoid of contrition, if our religion consists of just nodding to theological truths, it is likely a religion of scribes and Pharisees, outwardly shiny, clean-looking, dignified, inwardly dead and powerless. Secondly, you might be a scribe if you remain a stranger to the joy of true faith. Look at these people. They were all amazed and they glorified God, saying we never saw anyone like this. And then there's the scribes, souring in the corner. These were supposed to be the teachers of religion, and yet totally devoid of anything of substance. It was all words and precision and lovelessness. Have you ever had a teacher like that, kids? (laughs) I have. Someone who just kind of drones on about things long ago they lost their passion for? That kills education, and it kills true religion. No wonder it had sunk to an all-time low under the authority of the scribes and Pharisees. Sure, they obeyed a bunch of other small, some made-up commands, and yet they neglected the greatest one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Yes, tithe your spices. Yes, memorize the Torah. But you are missing the entire thing if your religion isn't fueled and defined by its love for God, love for Christ. They didn't love God. They loved themselves. And how they were perceived and their whole world had sunk to a sad list of little rules. So what about us? Is our religion a religion of words, of manufactured posture? 
Is it something we just defend? Or is it something that has broken into our hearts? Maybe you've heard of of Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh preacher. Maybe you didn't know this. His wife wasn't actually converted until several years after their marriage. Listen to her testimony. See if it resonates. This is from uh, Ian Murray's biography. Beth and Lloyd-Jones had grown up in the evangelical church. She'd heard her future husband preach for the first time only a few months before. He preached on the account of Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. And the point of his message was that all men in all circumstances are equally in need of salvation from sin. The message disturbed her greatly, even frightened her. She resented the idea that she was in the same category as someone who was not religious at all. Her state of unrest went on for many months. As she later wrote, I was for two years under Martin's ministry before I really understood what the gospel was. I used to listen to him on Sunday morning. I used to feel, well, if this is Christianity, I really don't know anything about it. On Sunday night, I used to pray that somebody would be converted. I thought you had to be a drunkard or a prostitute to be converted. I remember how I used to see drunkards become Christians and envy them with all my heart. Because here they were, full of joy and free, and here I was in such a different condition. She eventually does become a Christian and enter into that joy. But there are sadly, many I think in the church in the same position, coming faithfully every Sunday, sitting stoically through the preaching and the prayers and the worship and taking some cold comfort like the Pharisees in thinking, at least I'm not a sinner like those people over there. And yet for all of that, you were joyless because you were outside of the kingdom, a gospel that you only ever, ever tolerate and have to carry and that's only ever a burden is not the gospel of Christ. Why not listen to the voice of Jesus this morning? Why not lay aside the burden of a powerless religion and take up our mat and walk? Let's pray.